From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, July 17, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, university legacy admissions are in the crosshairs. Plus, why giving birth in the United States is so dangerous, and how an influential new group is targeting school board elections. All that and more. Stay with us. A new lawsuit claims Harvard University's governing body gives preferential treatment to applicants related to alumni and donors. The recent Supreme Court decision to ban race-conscious admissions has stirred debates on how legacy considerations discriminate against minorities. Reporter Asia Beckham has more. Three organizations are suing Harvard University's governing body for giving preferential treatment to applicants whose families are alumni or donors. The move comes just a week after the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, the race-conscious admission policy that leveled the playing field for applicants of color and the college admission process. Donor-related applicants were nearly seven times more likely to be admitted compared to non-donor-related applicants. Legacy applicants were six times more likely to be admitted compared to non-legacy applicants. The lawsuit says research has concluded one quarter of the students would not have been admitted if the donor legacy preference and other non-merit considerations did not exist. And without the practice, there would be greater diversity. College presidents argue the practice helps build relationships with donors and alumni and is an important tool for fundraising. Since the Supreme Court's ruling against affirmative action, challengers say the decision creates precedent to remove non-merit-based considerations from the admission process. I spoke with one of the attorneys spelling the lawsuit. My name is Oren Selstrom. I'm the litigation director at Lawyers for Civil Rights in Boston. We're a legal nonprofit that works on issues of racial justice and immigrants' rights. minority advocacy groups suing Harvard University's governing body for allegedly allowing students who are related to donors and alumni to receive preferences, uh, special treatment, and be admitted to the school at higher rates than other groups. There are about 15% of white students who are admitted based on that, and roughly 40% of Harvard's undergraduate students are white. Can you tell me a little bit about what groups benefit and what group is burdened when students are admitted based on whether they're related to donors or alumni? It is clear that the preferences for children of wealthy donors and children of alumni, uh, those preferences go overwhelmingly to white students and systematically at disadvantage students of color in the process. Um, so that is quite clear from the data that it is overwhelmingly a benefit that goes to white students and that black students, Latino students, and Asian American students are systematically disadvantaged in the process. And what changes is the lawsuit requesting the U.S. Department of Education take to end preferential treatment towards applicants related to donors and alumni? Federal law is very clear that any recipient of federal funds cannot engage in discriminatory practices. 
So our federal complaint with the Federal Department of Education um, asks for an investigation of these processes at Harvard and asks ultimately that the Department of Education insist that Harvard stop these practices or forego federal funding. Now, some U.S. schools have already removed their legacy processes. What impact has this had on diversity and inclusion? Well, you're exactly right that a number of schools have eliminated these unfair and undeserved preferences or have never had them in the first place. And what we know from the data is that uh, eliminating these unfair and undeserved preferences increases diversity uh, and there is no negative impact to the school. That is a key part of our complaint where we are arguing that these preferences overwhelmingly go to white students, that removing them would have a significant impact on diversity and would have no ill effect on Harvard. Uh, for that reason, we are asking the Department of Education to put an end to this preferential treatment that Harvard engages in. What about the arguments some may say by having wealthy donors that it sort of lowers tuition for students who don't have the income to afford tuition and sort of where donors may stand if they don't have the ability to kind of sway, if they're not able to, to have some say in, in their family members being admitted? The evidence actually shows the reverse. As you mentioned, there are a number of schools over the past eight to 10 years in particular that have done away with these unfair and undeserved preferences. And what those schools have reported is that um, donations actually increase and that there is no adverse effect on the institution's financial footing. Um, institutions like Johns Hopkins, like Amherst College, um, state schools like in Colorado or the University of California. There are many, many institutions that have done away with these unfair preferences mm -hmm. and have reported, in fact, that there are uh, numerous benefits from equaling the playing field that include both diversifying student bodies, but also making the system more fair and more based on individual merit. Is this lawsuit being felt now? that the U.S. Supreme Court rules affirmative action uh, can no longer be considered when going through application. This issue of unfair and undeserved preferences that go overwhelmingly to white students has been on our radar for quite some time, but certainly the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action heightened the urgency of moving on this front. And what we are essentially saying is that now is a critical moment to make sure that all of the unfair preferences that uh, overwhelmingly benefit white students, that disadvantage students of color, must be eliminated in light of the Supreme Court's ruling scaling back on affirmative action. It's all the more critical that institutions break down these barriers that stand in the way of equal opportunity for students of color. Can we go even a little bit deeper? What's the history of legacy admission, and how does this consideration come to be? Well, there have been uh, historians that have looked at this and that have traced legacy admissions back to uh, a real black mark on the uh, institution of Harvard's admissions process going back to in the early part of the 20th century when there were limits placed on the number of Jewish students that could attend the university and that legacy admissions were seen as one way in which that could be accomplished. 
Um, we and Harvard generally now look back on that chapter in Harvard's history as a, a real stain on the institution. I think in time, we will look back on this process of legacy admissions, of a preferential treatment that is given to children of wealthy donors with the same eye and really see this as something that should never have existed in the first place. Harvard is on the wrong side of history on this. And I think in time and hopefully sooner rather than later, it will realize that and these unfair and undeserved preferences will be a thing of the past. Let's take a look back at a 2015 discussion between Harvard University students debating the pros and cons of affirmative action, including legacy admissions. She argued, I'm just being turned down because I'm white. If I were a member of a minority group with my grades and test scores, I would have been admitted. And the statistics, the admissions statistics that came out in the trial confirmed that African-American and Mexican-American applicants that year who had her grades and test scores were admitted. Is it fair or is it unfair? Does Cheryl Hopwood have a case, a legitimate complaint? Were her rights violated by the admissions policy of the law school? Now I want to hear from a defender of Cheryl Hopwood. Yes. You're basing something on that's an arbitrary factor. You know, Cheryl couldn't control the fact that she was white or not in a minority. And therefore, you know, it's not as if it was like a test score that she worked hard to try and show that she could, you know, put that out there. You know, she had no control over her race. Good. And what's your name? Bree. Okay, Bree, stay right there. Now let's find someone who's, uh, who has an answer for Bree. Yes. Well, with regard to affirmative action based on race, I just want to say that white people have had their own affirmative action in this country for more than 400 years. It's called nepotism and quid pro quo. So there's nothing wrong with correcting the injustice and discrimination that's been done to black people for 400 years. Good. Tell us, wait, tell us your name. Mm-hmm. Hannah. Hannah. All right, who has an answer for Hannah? And just to add to Hannah's point, because we need, we need now someone to respond. Hannah, you could have also mentioned legacy admissions. Exactly. I was going to say, if you disagree with affirmative action, you should disagree with legacy admission because it's obvious from looking around here that there are more white legacies than black legacies in the history of Harvard University. And explain what legacy admissions are. Well, legacy admissions is giving an advantage to someone who has an arbitrary um, privilege of their parent having attended the university to which they're applying. All right. So a reply for Hannah. Yes, in the balcony, go ahead. First of all, if affirmative action is making up for past injustice, how do you explain minorities that were not historically discriminated against in the United States who get these advantages? In addition, you could argue that affirmative action perpetuates divisions between the races rather than achieve the ultimate goal of race being an irrelevant factor in our society. And what, tell us your name. Danielle. Hannah. I disagree with that because I think that 
by promoting diversity in an institution like this, you further educate all of the students, especially the white students who grew up in predominantly white areas. It's certainly a form of education to be exposed to people from different backgrounds, and you put white students at an inherent disadvantage when you surround them only with their own kind. Why should race necessarily be equated with diversity? There are so many other forms. Why should we assume that race makes people different? Again, that's perpetuating the idea of racial division within our universities and our society. With regard to um, African-American people being given a special advantage, it's obvious that they bring something special to the table because they have a unique perspective just as someone from a different religion or socioeconomic background would as well. As you say, there are many different types of diversity. There's no reason that racial diversity should be eliminated from that criteria. Yes, go ahead. Racial discrimination is illegal in this country, and I believe that it was African-American leaders themselves when Martin Luther King said he wanted to be judged not on the color of his skin, but by the content of his character, his merit, his achievements. And I just think that to, do, to decide solely based on someone's race is just inherently unfair. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to correct based on disadvantaged backgrounds, that's fine. But there are also disadvantaged white people as well. It shouldn't matter Let if me you're white. Let me tell us your name. Ted. Ted? Yes. Think of Hopwood. It's unfair to count race. Or, I assume you would also say ethnicity or religion? Yes. Do you think she has a right to be considered according to her grades and test scores alone? There, no, there's, there is more to it than that. You need to, universities need to promote diversity. And I so you agree with the goal of promoting diversity? There's ways to promote diversity besides discriminating against people solely based on a factor that they cannot control. All right, so what makes it wrong is that she can't control her race. She can't control the fact that she's white. That's the, that's the heart of the unfairness to her. Bree made a similar point, that basing admissions on factors that people can't control is fundamentally unfair. What do you say? There's a lot of things you can't control, and if you're going to go it, through it based on merit, like just based on your test scores, a lot of what you can achieve has to do with the family background that you raised in. If both your parents were um, scholarly, then you have more of a chances of actually being more scholarly yourself and getting those grades. Giving birth is riskier in the United States than in any other developed economy in the world, and it's getting worse. New research published by independent groups found maternal mortality rates in the U.S. to be high and increasing before and during the coronavirus pandemic. Furthermore, racial disparities in maternal mortality rates are worse in the U.S. than in any other Western Hemisphere country that records such data. The United Nations Population Fund, in a report published last week, explicitly rejected the notion that these racial disparities are the result of individual behavior or genetics, finding instead a, quote, systemic and historical pattern of racist abuse in the health sector, end quote. To better understand the U.S.'s unique failure to protect new mothers, particularly black and indigenous mothers, Monday Morning QB was joined by Veena Smith-Ramakrishnan, Senior Policy Associate at the progressive think tank, the Century Foundation. 
Smith Ramakrishnan explained first how maternal mortality and the related deeply ingrained racism worsened during the coronavirus pandemic period. The pandemic was obviously terrible for so many reasons. Maternal health is one of those issue areas that I think in the past year or so, we have come to see the data that was collected during the pandemic that has really highlighted it. Last year, for example, um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released what were the 2020 maternal mortality statistics. And that, I think, was really when people started to understand just how bad the pandemic had been for new moms in the country. Um, it increased between 2019 and 2020, and now we've seen even new data from the CDC showing that it is continuing to trend upwards. And what's really been alarming to a lot of people, but to us at TCF, we try to do all of our work with an equity lens, is the racial disparities that we're seeing within the already really bad numbers for everyone across the board. Um, but we're especially seeing really stark disparities when it comes to Black women and birthing people and other women of color as well, but specifically looking at Black women who are roughly three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes um, as white women. And the pandemic, you know, just has continued to exacerbate those existing disparities that we knew existed. As you said, the pandemic didn't start this problem of racial disparities within maternal mortality rates. There's some recent research that uh, reinforces this idea. Last week, the uh, there was some research published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed maternal mortality rates dramatically worsening across all racial and ethnic groups in the U.S., but uh, with particularly bad outcomes for black mothers and American Indian and Native mothers. And a recent U.N. report blames these disparities explicitly on racism within the healthcare industry. Can you talk about the various ways that that racism manifests and how it compounds existing racialized disparities in, in access to healthcare in the first place. Definitely. Personally, I was I was really grateful that the UN report was really explicit about calling that out because I think a lot of the times when you continue to see these news headlines and these reports like, oh, you know, black women or indigenous women are having these worse outcomes, I think a lot of people's mind goes to, well, that must be, you know, because of race instead of because of racism. And I think it's really important that we call out that it's the racism within our healthcare systems that are causing these disparities, not the biological race of the women who are experiencing the poor outcomes. And so I, I definitely wanna reemphasize that point that the UN report made. Um, and like you mentioned, it's great that we're continuing to like collect and reflect on data, both pre-pandemic and within the pandemic. Um, but I think that like we've been saying, these points are not new. And I think especially Black women in communities have been trying to make these points for decades. So it's great to see that there's new data coming out to bolster our policy asks and reemphasize why it's so important. Um, and we can have a better grasp on the issue thanks to the data that's been um, released. But you're absolutely right. It, it's not new, um, but we're hoping that the new headlines are going to draw more attention and more focus and ideally more more funding and political attention to the issue. I think that UN report also mentioned that racial disparities in the U.S. were worse than in other countries in North and South America, which includes obviously countries that are not as developed as, as the United States. Can you talk about what these less developed economies are doing better in terms of addressing racial disparities in, in maternal mortality? Yeah, so in the U.S., we spend the most per capita on health care of any other nation in the world. And I mean, despite that, we have some of the worst, the worst maternal health outcomes of any other industrialized nation. And even like you mentioned, compared to other nations that might not be as developed as us, we are still lagging behind. And I do think a large reason behind that is the for-profit motive behind our healthcare system that prioritizes, 
you know, money over outcomes and over patients and even over providers themselves who have been, we've really seen them be squeezed to this pandemic as well. But just the emphasis is not on preventative care. Um, it's not on culturally congruent care, which is making sure that the provider is understanding of the cultural or linguistic or religious background of the people that they're taking care of, um, which has been shown to dramatically improve people's health outcomes. Um, but I think just having this system where everything is so focused on how quickly can providers see patients and turn them out and get to the next one, um, the reimbursement rates are low. And so that is forcing providers to have to, you know, churn through these patients. That's how people fall through the cracks. And if you add the layer of implicit bias and the racism that is frankly just baked into our society on top of that, then you get these instances where, you know, Black women and women of color are not being listened to. Um, their pain is being ignored. Um, they're not being given the proper attention that they deserve during what is already an extremely vulnerable time in someone's life when you're preparing um, to give birth, both you know physically and mentally and emotionally. You mentioned the for-profit motive, and I'm curious whether it's possible to know whether fundamental reforms like introducing single-payer health care in the United States, what that would do to improve maternal mortality across the board, but also improve racial disparities in the U.S. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have, obviously, at, at TCF, we have a blue, blue sky vision for what we'd like to see the um, healthcare system turn into. I think looking at maternal health specifically, we're focused on a few major elements that would be more feasible and realistic in the short term, despite having potentially loftier goals for long term. Um, and those definitely include looking at mandatory extension of the postpartum Medicaid coverage option to 12 months. Um, one of the policy wins that we saw last year was that at the very end of the Congress, um, during the appropriations process, we saw that 12-month postpartum Medicaid coverage got made permanent, which is fantastic. And so far, I think 36 states, including D.C., have taken up that option. But that's not going to enforce it for every single state. Um, and so we are really advocating for this to be mandatory as well as permanent in order to ensure that everybody um, who needs access to affordable health care in that postpartum period um, that and that extends all the way up to a full year after giving birth, um, they can access the healthcare that they need. And that's a really vulnerable period for new moms. So getting cut off from your healthcare insurance uh, just 60 days, for example, after bringing a new life into the world, um, we believe is just really unjust. And out of Medicaid beneficiaries specifically, um, Black women and birthing people are disproportionately represented in that demographic that's on the um, the U.S. public insurance. And so they're going to be the most impacted by this. So really pushing for mandatory. <laughs> um, but that's just one example of, of like a shorter term policy angle that we are trying to achieve. I want to turn to economic impacts here. You know, clearly families are hurt financially when a breadwinner, uh, a mother dies in or around childbirth. And I'd imagine this doesn't just have short term immediate consequences, but long term, potentially intergenerational consequences as there's less resources to, to fund, say, education for a child. Um, can you talk about both the short and long-term economic harms of high maternal mortality rates and also of high morbidity rates, which I think are, are less talked about as, as mortality? I would absolutely agree that the morbidity rates are less talked about. Um, and for a lot of people, that, that maternal morbidity, it can really be like a disabling event. And th these are chronic issues that we're talking about. Um, so now we're talking about potential lost wages over a number of years instead of just, you know, in that immediate event. Um, 
but we are fortunately looking at legislation that is going to address not only mortality, but also morbidity. We just had the reintroduction of the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act um, just after Mother's Day this year, um, which is, you know, a suite of legislation. The original had 12 different bills. Um, They tacked on an additional 13th bill this year in this Congress um, that are tackling different components of the maternal health crisis. Um, The this iteration of the Momnibus is looking primarily at maternal mortality and a little bit touching on morbidity. Um, but later this year, we're going to see the introduction of Momnibus 2.0 is what they're calling it right now, which is going to really gear the focus more towards morbidity as well. Because I, I think, like you mentioned, that is some of the gaps haven't really been filled in in that area and looking at things like um, breastfeeding and lactation support um, and other areas where maybe is not necessarily directly related to maternal deaths, which, you know, those are the headlines that are grabbing folks' attention, but are still equally important and deserve, you know, that funding attention um, in the policy space as well. So you mentioned the the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, which is one of many pieces of legislation, if our listeners are interested, uh, being tracked on the Century Foundation website, where you can see congressional support. And I'm curious, where are we with congressional support, particularly bipartisan support, perhaps, for the Momnibus Act? And what's the legislative strategy to win broader support and and hopefully passage of of the act? Well, first, I want to thank you for the plug, Chris. Um, Definitely go to our website if you're interested in looking at our lovely Momnibus tracker. Um, But yeah, the Momnibus is, you know, it's been around for a bit. And I think we've only had one bill be actually passed into law, and that was looking at moms who are veterans and how to make sure that they have adequate maternal health access. And usually when we see things around veteran healthcare, those tend to be more bipartisan issues, and that's to be expected. And I think a lot of the other bills um, include components that might not be as palatable, just purely looking at the racial aspect of these disparities that we're seeing, if I'm being frank. Um, But Despite that, I do think there are areas where we can come together on these issues, looking at getting moms access to the care that they need. Um, one area that I think TCF is, is leading on that is through the Black Maternal Health Federal Policy Collective, um, which is a coalition space that's bringing together Black women policy leaders who are focused on maternal health issues from a variety of different organizations. Um, and one of our goals this year is to really you know, engage with different um, offices on the Hill and connect the dots between Black maternal health and other policy issue areas that may not traditionally be associated with maternal health. And just showing how everything from, you know, climate change, the economy and jobs, um, disability access, um, women's participation in the economy, all of these things are interconnected with maternal health. And one of our goals is to just connect the dots for different offices and to show them your constituents might not be raising this as a problem, but here's how it can be connected to things that you might be caring about. I'm curious in general, there seems to be a, a push towards fiscal conservatism in this Congress, particularly with Senator Joe Manchin and, and others in the Democratic Party kind of hewing towards the right. We've seen this deal uh, hashed out between Biden and uh, Majority Speaker McCarthy which clearly limits spending in the future. Does this limit on spending make it more difficult to pass aspects of the Momnibus Act or can they can they be passed with existing funding? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I think if you're looking at, I mean, I come from a public health background, so my what my answer to the questions I've is always that, you know, prevention is always going to make the most financial sense, in my opinion, even from an economic perspective. Um, making these investments in healthcare right now, today, um, are going. To, we're only going to see the benefits down the road in terms of saved 
saving saving lives literally and saving money as well. Um, I, so I think that's how I would <laughs> that's how I respond to anyone saying you know we care about spending. Um, spend on preventive measures and public health. This is clearly a really complex issue. I just wanted to give you a chance to provide closing thoughts if you have any. Yeah, absolutely. The the last thing I'll say that that might seem like um, going on a different tangent, but in my opinion, I think is directly connected is I just wanted to uplift um, the fact that the Abortion Justice Act was just introduced in Congress. Um, part of TCF um, TCF's goal is to um, connect the dots between maternal health and abortion, um, which those two are often viewed in silos. Um, but since the Dobbs decision last summer, the Supreme Court case, um, there has really been an increased focus on connecting the dots between the two issues. And that's something else that the Black Maternal Health Federal Policy Collective has been working diligently on. Last summer, we put out um, messaging guidance on kind of connecting the dots between these two issues. Um, and already we're seeing news stories of women across the country being criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes, whether that is seeking abortion care or having miscarriages. And just to note, medically speaking, it's basically impossible to distinguish between those two. So this creates a really dangerous gray zone where we know Black, Indigenous, and other people of color are going to be criminalized at much higher rates. Um, and so that's an issue that we're keeping our eye closely on um, and just wanted to uplift that as another as another element of reproductive justice um, that is often hand-in-hand with maternal health. That's Veena Smith-Ramakrishnan, Senior Policy Associate at the Century Foundation. To learn more and to track some of the legislation intended to fix the U.S. maternal mortality problem, visit tcf.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. You're listening to Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. The Southern Poverty Law Center, also known as SPLC, is, for the first time, labeling Moms for Liberty and 11 other right-wing parents' rights groups as extremist groups in its annual report released last month. As the report notes, these groups are part of a growing anti-student inclusion movement that targets any inclusive curriculum that contains discussions of race, discrimination, and LGBTQ plus identities. At the forefront of this mobilization, as the report notes, is Moms for Liberty, a Florida-based group with deep connections to the GOP. These connections were on full display just two weeks ago, when five Republican presidential candidates, including front-runner Donald Trump and his leading rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, took the stage at a Moms for Liberty summit in Philadelphia. To learn more about Moms for Liberty, we turn to Maya Henson-Carey, a research analyst with SPLC's Intelligence Project. And as she reminded us, when the group first started, it had a more limited agenda than it has today. First started popping up at school board meetings during COVID-19 to fight COVID-19 mask and vaccine mandates. That was in 2021. Since then, Moms for Liberty, which claims 285 chapters in 45 states, has broadened their agenda to combat what they call 
the woke indoctrination around diversity and inclusion. As noted on the SPLC website, that includes an extreme stance on what it considers the indoctrination and sexualization of children through gender identity, the acknowledgement and acceptance of the LGBT community, as well as inclusive school pedagogy and curricula, including critical race theory, social-emotional learning, and books that Moms for Liberty deems inappropriate. That's correct. During COVID-19, that's also when we saw social shifts sparked really by the death of George Floyd. And then terms like critical race theory and DEI became kind of a boogeyman in some groups. And parents also said that during COVID-19, when kids were quarantined and learning at home, they really got to look behind the curtain and see what curriculum was included and what their kids were learning. So, you know, they went from COVID-19 issues to what they consider to be critical race theory and DEI issues, and then that quickly incorporated book bans. And the majority of these books that they are against have to do with people of color and the LGBTQ plus community. And when it comes to book bans, there's reason to believe that Moms for Liberty is having an impact. Since the start of the 2022-2023 school year, PEN America recorded 1,477 separate instances of book bans across the country. And in their recent report, Banned in the USA, PEN America identifies some trends in those numbers such as the books being banned across the U.S. remain primarily those by and about people of color and or LGBTQ plus people. Another trend is the number of bans connected to organized advocacy groups. And according to Penn, the most influential of these groups is Moms for Liberty. But it's not just banned books that tell a story. There's also book challenges. A record number of book challenges emerged across the country in 2022, with more than 2,570 unique titles targeted, according to data from the American Library Association. And even though every challenge may not result in a ban, it could mean the book is pulled from the shelf while the challenge is being evaluated. And, as Maya Henson-Carey explains, that has consequences. There are very few instances where book bans are now called book bans. We've seen school districts that do like a shadow banning. So books that have been deemed as inappropriate or up for review will be removed from the catalog. So some parents have reported going into the library catalog and seeing a book checked out for a year. And then eventually the book will be listed as deselected. So the library is saying that they're obsolete and then weeded out of the catalog so they can say, you know, we never banned it. We just weeded it out of our selection. And are you saying moms are involved in some of this? Oh, yes, definitely. Because depending on the policy of the school district, any parent can submit a book challenge or any citizen, really, because we've seen people that aren't parents that are just community members can submit a book challenge. And in some instances, the school will remove the book altogether pending review. So that means that if it takes them a year to review the book, the book is just not in the classroom or on the shelf. 
And in some cases, the book review committee or the school board will say, this is fine, we'll put it back. But in other cases, the books never come back. And, and groups like Moms for Liberty also have all of these resources out now of lists of books that they have deemed as inappropriate. So they're really saying to parents, go and look and see if these books are in your school. And then say, well, here are the, here are the passages that are concerning. So they'll these quotes. So now people can file book challenges without having read the actual book. They're just looking at this one pager that says this book is bad because these five quotes with no context. Now, it's not just book ban efforts that are raising concerns about Moms for Liberty. It's also their focus on electing conservatives on school boards to bring about their conservative priorities and not just about books. And, as Maya Henson-Carey explains... It's a further example of the right wing bringing its agenda out of the margins of political dynamics and into the mainstream. I'll say that one thing that that SPLC noted in this year's Year of Hate and Extremism report is that shift um, of extremism to public spaces. So we used to think of like extremists as out there on the fringes. They're the Klan. They're out there. We know they're there, but they're not interrupting our everyday lives. And we've seen that shift into public spaces, so into local elections like school board elections and county commissioners. And that was a really concerted effort. You know, no one was paying attention to education. No one was going to school boards until all of a sudden they erupted, right? And that was a very strategic, intentional move to get these school boards flipped, and that's a Moms for Liberty term, to flip a school board in their favor. And then once they flip the school board in their favor, they can go about, you know, enacting all these big changes. During the 2022 midterms, Moms for Liberty endorsed somewhere near 300 school board candidates. Um, And afterwards, they say they flipped so many in their favor. And immediately after these Moms for Liberty majority school boards got in place, we saw them firing superintendents and enacting book review committees that superseded librarians and enacting anti-CRT policies and policies against the LGBTQ plus community. As for the willingness of Republicans to identify as connected to Moms for Liberty, Maya Henson-Carey says we should not be surprised. Right, and this is not new. I mean, we've seen, you know, in the, in the 2022 midterm cycle, we saw politicians run on parental rights platforms. Um, and that was able to attract a lot, of, a lot of voters for them. And though it may seem obvious, we felt it was important to ask Maya Henson-Carey what gets lost if the Moms for Liberty and like-minded groups are successful. You know, that's something that we think about all the time. I think that what is lost is initially we're seeing these groups try to erase the identities of black and brown people from LGBTQ plus uh, students from these public spaces. But they are also trying to erase things like the contributions of the LGBTQ plus community and black and brown people throughout American history. And I think that that does not only pertain to those marginalized communities, every student deserves the right to learn about the history of our country and who and what shaped it, whether it's you know, good, bad, or ugly, you know, it's history. And I think removing any of that from schools um, does a great disservice to not only students, but 
society that these students are becoming citizens in. As a parting thought, Maya Henson Carey asks us to recognize that groups like Moms for Liberty are not the only parent advocacy groups that should be receiving our attention. There are others, she says, working to advance inclusion and diversity in schools. One thing that I do try to uplift is, you know, the fact that there are true parent advocacy groups. You know, we refer to groups like Moms for Liberty as anti-student inclusion groups. But there are true parent advocacy groups. You know, we spotlighted one from Florida in the Year in Hate and Extremism. And these groups are really looking to not only push back against groups like Moms for Liberty, but they really act with the best interest of all students and all parents, you know, in mind, whether it's DEI initiatives or an inclusive curriculum or just funding public education. These are the groups that are really working for all students and parents. And sometimes they're just not the loudest voices in the room. They don't get as much media attention. So I do think it's important to spotlight the work that they're doing in community. Maya Henson-Carey is a research analyst with Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project. To learn more about their work countering hate and anti-government extremism, visit splcenter.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. This morning, U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry began talks with counterparts in China, where several high-level officials have traveled in the last month to try to patch up relations. In the last several years, as the clock ticks down towards climate crisis, the U.S.-China relationship has taken a deeply competitive, if not adversarial, turn. There can be no climate solution without collaboration between these two giants, and prospects are not rosy, even given the recent diplomatic exchanges. Reporter Chris Banger Drowns first reported this story in August 2021. U.S. confrontation with China is nothing new. President Obama launched a pivot to Asia in 2012, that saw economic and military resources reorganized in opposition to China. Former President Trump escalated tensions, first through a tariff war and then xenophobic rhetoric around the coronavirus. And according to Laura Steichen, outreach coordinator at the National Priorities Project of the Institute for Policy Studies, President Biden has continued that confrontational posture towards China, making diplomatic relations, particularly around climate, even more difficult to achieve. Since taking office, President Biden has really continued to preside over what has really become sort of bipartisan belligerence towards China. That has included a new military ramp up aimed at countering China's relatively modest military capabilities, That's included support for hawkish legislation in Congress that's designed to counter China and maintain U.S. global primacy. 
and somewhat astoundingly has wrapped otherwise independently popular domestic policies. So green industrial policy, for example, which is broadly popular on its own, but the administration has wrapped these policies up in the language of zero-sum competition with China. Predictably, diplomatic relationships have continued to deteriorate in this climate, and this nationalist posturing from the United States really only flames domestic nationalism in China. And so what we've seen in response is that the Chinese government has really doubled down on its current policies. China and the U.S. have made stated commitments to work together on climate, but so far there's been little to no concrete action. And and U.S. Mm -hmm. officials say that it's possible to sort of separate the very clear economic and military competition that you just described with China from what they desire in terms of a cooperative climate diplomacy. But you write that that's not possible. Why are they wrong? Yeah, so ahead of the Global Leader Summit on Climate Change that President Biden hosted in April of this year, the United States and China produced this joint statement expressing a commitment to cooperate with each other and with other countries to tackle the climate crisis. And while that was a promising message, that statement didn't actually include any new concrete efforts to work together. And since then, we've seen tensions between the two countries continue to escalate. And I don't think we've seen significant evidence of cooperation on any issue between the two countries, including on climate change. And so I think it's a little naive to imagine that strong diplomatic relationships, which are necessary to work together on issues like climate change, can coexist with ramped up military posturing, with confrontational economic policy and with aggressive rhetoric. I think quite the opposite, these escalating tensions will only feed military budgets and the rise of nationalist policies, both in the United States and in China. And you know, in reality, those kinds of policy decisions are really counterproductive and they undermine the urgently needed climate solutions that like I said, necessarily hinge on strong international partnerships and global cooperation. And you make the point that the Pentagon is is clearly a leading global pollution emitter. And and so it seems obvious on its face that a, a reduction to the U.S. military budget would hypothetically both reduce Pentagon emissions and reduce tensions with China. Why don't China skeptics or China hawks in the Biden White House see it that way? Yeah, so like you said, the Pentagon is a major polluter, according to research from um, the Cost of War Project out of Brown University. The Pentagon is the single largest consumer of oil in the world and one of the world's top greenhouse gas emitters. And so reducing the military budget would be advantageous for both cutting emissions and reducing tensions with China. But regardless of this reality, I think it's the instinct of the foreign policy establishment in Washington to identify a foreign enemy that really keeps the powerful military industrial complex in this country operating smoothly. So there are powerful corporate interests invested in maintaining a militarized economy here in the United States. And so we really have to make a choice. Do we want to keep investing in military industrial policy that 
keeps us on this deadly path that we're on or invest in green jobs and low carbon jobs in the care economy that really produce a life-giving economy instead. And you write that the, the U.S. and China would bring complementary strengths to bear on this question of climate change. What are those complementary strengths and, and why is it so important for these two countries in particular to act together on climate? So the United States and China are the world's two most powerful economies. They're also currently the world's top carbon polluters. And I mean, the urgency is clear from climate scientists and from everyday people all over the world who are already living with the deadly impacts of the climate crisis. The time to act on climate change was like yesterday, but at the very least it's now. And the United States and China as well must each do their fair share in addressing this global crisis. So what does that look like? First of all, clearly each country must rein in their domestic emissions. There's huge emissions loads coming out of each country. At the same time, each of these countries has the joint capacity to help finance the clean energy transition globally and help developing nations and poor nations reduce greenhouse gas emissions as well. And the United States and China each bring complementary strengths to global clean energy transition. The United States leads in research and development of clean energy technologies and has access to financial capital. China leads the world in industrial capacity across a variety of clean technology industries. There are really important building blocks in each country that we ought to be finding ways to coordinate. You know, it, lastly, it seems, it seems unlikely that the U.S. will change its competitive posture or, or its belligerence towards China without some shift in either international or domestic pressures. And it's unclear how much pressure the U.S. will face internationally. Looking domestically, what can U.S. social movements do to push for a more cooperative relationship with China and particularly for a diplomatic relationship around climate? So there are calls from movements around the world for what's being called a global Green New Deal. And there's growing recognition from social movements here in the United States of the need to really expand popular domestic proposals for green industrial policy and green jobs to reach the scope of the entire global economy. And that sort of necessarily requires new forms of internationalism. So instead of leaning into tired and harmful frameworks of competition, we're in a really critical moment where we need to invest in strong international partnerships rooted in cooperation, in resource sharing, and in solidarity. And maybe that sounds a little pie in the sky, but the reality is, is that the climate crisis, like so many of the crises we face today, like the pandemic and inequality, these are global crises. So to meet them, we need to develop global frameworks, in this case for green investment and industrial policy that actually confronts the global scale of the crisis. That's Laura Steichen, Outreach Coordinator at the National Priorities Project of the Institute for Policy Studies. Read her piece for In These Times and Foreign Policy in Focus, titled Biden's Climate Pledges Are Incompatible with His Belligerence Towards China. And keep an eye out for the forthcoming Militarized Budget Report, 
tracking military expenditures across the federal government. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Normally at this part of the show, we celebrate a jazz birthday. But today, we have enlisted the help of one of our resident comedians and co-host of Community Watch and Comment Friday, Chip Jones, with this comedy birthday. Hey, come on, man. Who is it? It's Dave, man. Will you open up? I got the stuff with me. Dave, man, open up. Dave? Yeah, Dave. Dave's not here. No, man, I am Dave, man. Will you? Come on. Open up the door, will you? I got the stuff with me. I think the cops saw me. Who is it? Oh, what the hell is it? Come Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. D-A-V-E. Will you open up the goddamn door? Yeah, Dave. Dave? Right, man. Dave. Now, will you open up the door? Dave's not here. Oh, (laughs) That was a classic comedy bit called Dave by Richard Anthony Cheech Marin and Tommy Chong, known to many simply as Cheech and Chong. On July 13th, Cheech Marin turned 77 years old. Born in Los Angeles, California to Elise Meza, a secretary, and Oscar Marin, an LAPD officer, Marin tells a story that he got the name Cheech from an uncle who saw him shortly after his birth and remarked that he looked like a little chicharrone the fried pork rind, which was popular as a snack and an ingredient in Latin American cuisine. He studied at California State University, Northridge, and it was during this time that he was introduced to marijuana, a key element in his later comedy and film career. In addition, he became acquainted with Timothy Leary at a local Student for Democratic Society event. They would become lifelong friends. He graduated from CSUN, as an English major in 1968, and soon after auditioned to sing for Frank Zappa's band, The Mothers of Invention. Not being offered a gig after the audition, a day later he moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, in order to evade the draft for the Vietnam War. Marin met his future comedic partner, Tommy Chong, in Calgary, Alberta. Marin is an avid collector of Chicano art and started his collection in the 80s. Two national touring exhibitions have featured works from his private collection. He feels that it's important to, as he says, to use his celebrity status to call attention to what he called an underappreciated and underrepresented style of art. As a part of the highly successful comedy duo Cheech and Chong, Marin participated in a number of comedy albums and feature films in the 1970s and 1980s and was part of the change in comedy, where comedians began to tell jokes that actually reflected who they were and their real-life experiences. I want to ask a question, because I've been having a debate with a lot of people, like, what do we want to be called? How many in this audience tonight want to be known as Hispanics? Okay, that's cool. Not many. How many want to be known as Latinos? Few more. How many want to be known as Chicanos? (laughs) Well, before we were Hispanics and before we were Latinos, before we were Chicanos, we were Mexican-Americans! 
So while Marin played comedic characters in films and on TV, and has voiced characters for animation like The Lion King, Cars, and Oliver and Company, his stand-up has always been about who he is, and at this point in his life, it's about his identity as a Chicano. Mexican-American Don't like to just get into gang fights They like flowers And music And white girls named Debbie too Mexican-Americans Love education So they go to night school And they take Spanish and get a B above average. Mexican Americans don't like to get up early in the morning, but they have to, so they do it real slow. Love their nanas and their nonos and their ninas and their ninos. Nanu, nanu, nina, no, no. Mexican Americans are named Chata and Chela and Chema and, and little Chema and have a son in law named Jeff. Mexican-Americans don't like to go to the movies where the dude has to wear contact lenses to make his blue eyes brown because don't they make my brown eyes blue. Mexican-Americans live in Los Angeles, San Diego, uh, San Antonio, San Francisco, and now all over Manhattan. <laughs> Mexican-Americans have been here forever, and we're going to be here forever. And we only want whatever you think is fair. <laughs> Mexican-Americans! So, happy birthday, Cheech. I'm Chip Jones for Monday Morning QB. And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Join us again next Monday morning and visit WPFWFM.org to become a sustainer of this great radio station. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington. Thank you.